Welcome to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. Enjoy the show. In their heads, there's this back to the future, you know, room size piece of equipment when in reality it's the size of a phone. The actual cell is the size of a phone. what feeds it is the chandelier. So anyway, see that's amazing. See, exactly. That's, yeah, that's, that's kind of like what we're, that's kind of like what we're having because you look at it and you're like, what is this? <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like I don't know. It's like is it art? Is it or is it like a computer? Like how does this thing? Uh, like you're kind of like amazed and curious, intimidated yeah. at the same time. Maybe you want to touch it, but you probably shouldn't touch it. I imagine. Uh, yeah, well, you can touch the chandelier. But not when it's inside the enclosure. That's it. And in the cold, you probably want to stay away. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I guess we, we have you two on to explain how it works and how it impacts payments. So yeah, let's just start by having some intros since this is our actually our second Ohio, except one. Except for me. Except for <laughs> still, Emily in Maine uh, podcast. Still for Maine. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm Elliot. I'm your co-host. And I'm Emily, your other co-host. She's from Maine. I'm from uh, Maine. I'm not from Ohio, I'm but... I'm from Ohio, Cleveland, <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. And we have two people to talk about payments and dun-dun-dun. Quantum, Quantum computing. computing. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. Right. So, uh, Marianne, how about you go first? Sure. Marianne Francis, based in Cleveland, Ohio. So I have to say to the crew, O-H. I-O. I'm actually, my, my title is Executive Advisor, Global Payments and Strategic Initiatives Consulting. I'm actually a legacy banker. So as backdrop, I ran the trade and treasury division of what most people would know now as PNC for almost 25 years. So very involved in the payments industry. And from there, several other companies, I was head of strategy and product um, and very interested and very involved globally. So I even currently sit on three boards, one in Europe, one in the US and one in Australia, APAC. So I've remained extremely involved. And as you'll hear me say, I'm always interested in the new payments phenomenons and the emerging technologies. So I grasp things like blockchain and crypto back in the day. Quantum is the new hot topic and, and what people should be looking for. So it's a it's a very interesting area for payments folks to be uh, to be focusing in. Thanks for the intro. Awesome. And Ray? All right. The other Ohioan. <laughs> name is uh, Ray Harishankar. I am an IBM fellow from the IBM quantum team, and I've been focused on quantum safe. I am a proud alumni of The Ohio State University, and um, I've been working on quantum safe and quantum computing for the last uh, two plus years, and that's what I'm here to talk about. Great. He globetrots more than I do, if that's humanly possible. Is that possible? <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, he, he absolutely globetrots more than me. He's like the George Clooney <laughs> <laughs> of travel. Do that's young amazing. people know who George Clooney is? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Ooh, I mean, he's I mean, still okay. relevant, don't we? Okay, I, I don't know. Like, yeah, I'm just saying. Up in the air. The movie was called Up in the Air. Yeah. I don't know. Yes, the reference doesn't. You well, it doesn't it? go over my head. I okay. got it, but I don't know, man. I I, 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 I think 1992 so. was like 10 years ago, and it was like 31. <laughs> it was blowing my mind this morning. So like, that's how old the movie is. I know. Me. Wow, yeah. that's a long time. I mean. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, my mind. Yeah. So I mean, it, Gen Z, I don't know if they know who George Clooney is because that was more like a not. Well, they know he's married to Amal. So if they know nothing else. Exactly. 
Okay. So, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll speak for Gen Z on this one, and maybe it's out there. Yes, I, we, I got no the George reference. Clooney I know okay. George Clooney. Okay, good. So we're relevant. <laughs> maybe speaking for too many people, but that's okay. But to get into, yeah, to get into the questions of the podcast, we wanted to start out with a fun little quote that Marianne has said, which is, when you're a risk taker, it gets to a point where you wind up jumping off a cliff. So we're curious to know where the jumping off a cliff point is in risk-taking with payments? Well, in payments, the risk-taking is just keeping up with what's going on. The pace is, it's not even evolutionary, it's revolutionary, right? So the pace of new, I hate the word payment types because there's really only still some basic payment types, but rails, so many rails and so many apps and so many layers over those rails. Some people hate the term lipstick on a pig, but I call it lipstick on a pig. At the end of the day, there's rails that move the money. And most of them are card, check, ACH, and wire, period. Yes, there's real time. Yes, there's crypto. But there, yes, there's cash. But by and large, most of these world payments settle in one of those rails and networks. But what's happened is evolved over the apps on top and the fintechs on top, right? Banks are the root and the cause. But you layer all of these other partners, suppliers, providers. It's a spider web. And actually, I did a roundtable a couple of weeks ago talking about alternative payment rails. And I said, alternative to what? Like, we say all payment rails, but the best comparison, when you think about it, and the risk comes in this, have you ever been on a New York subway? You ever seen the poster on the New York subway wall? The blue line, the red line, the green line, the yellow line. And oh, if you want to go here, you take the red line to here. Then you get off and you go to the blue line and then you get off and you go to the... That's what the rails look like. Behind the scenes, it's not understood that it's not a straight shot from your credit card to the account, from your check to the account. It's not a straight line. And there's all of these intersections where it just creates failure points. It adds friction and time. And so the risk is figuring that out, understanding it, and how to manage it, and what tools are available to you. But honestly, those of us in the payments world, if you look at a New York subway map, to me, I'm looking at the payments ecosystem. That's what it looks like. Interesting. That adds a couple layers of complexity <laughs> to, to the talk. So like, Ray, where does quantum computing come in, in this story? Maybe first, can we, I guess it would be good to explain what quantum computing is because, yes. I mean, obviously everyone <laughs> listening knows what it is, but just to refresh, you know, refresh, refresh people, the memory, refresh people's bit. memories <laughs> yeah. if they're not intimately familiar with uh, the sector. So, so let me start by defining quantum computing and calling out what it is and what it is not, right? So most people think about quantum computing as faster classical computing. That is simply not the case. Classical computing uses bits, zeros and ones that we know of as the basis on which it does its computations. And quantum computing is not based on those bits. It's actually based on what are called qubits. And qubits take three values, zero or one, or a value anywhere between zero and one. So that is a fundamental difference in how Classical and quantum computing are different in terms of how they are architected. The second is quantum computing is based on certain quantum physical properties or you know quantum mechanics, as we call it, right? And that's what allows this qubit to be in zero or one or anywhere in between. And there is a completely different set of 
architecture and mathematics that takes advantage of that capability. So a classical computer, you know, does your payroll, your your portfolio management, your banking, et cetera, et cetera, whereas a quantum computing is not going to do or replace any of those. A classical computer and a quantum computer will always coexist or they will work side by side with the classical computing doing some portion of the work and then the appropriate part of the work or workload, as we call it, will be executed by quantum computer and then the results will be assembled back by the classical computer and then used by whoever is using it. That's how it typically works. There are certain types of problems that a quantum computer is good at solving. And I'll break them down, you know, at a high level into into two buckets. One, there are problems that a classical computer solves that a quantum computer can solve much better. So an example of that could be a classical computer does portfolio rebalancing, Monte Carlo analysis. These are things that, that a classical computer does, but a quantum computer can do that much better and much faster. Second is there are certain types of problems that a classical computer simply cannot solve. It is incapable of solving. No algorithms exist or it takes millions of years to solve that given problem, whereas a quantum computer can solve that. So there are unsolvable problems by classical that are solved by quantum computer. Case in point being factorization. If I gave you a number 65 and said, hey, what are the two factors of that? You come up and say 13 and 5. But if I were to give you a number that is 637 digits long and say, go find the factors for that, obviously a human cannot do that in in his or her head, neither can any supercomputer that exists on Earth. It takes millions of years to do that, if at all, whereas a quantum computer can solve that in a matter of hours. When a powerful quantum computer is available, it will solve that in a matter of hours. And you may say, so what? The so what (laughs) is... The so what is actually this. Quantum computer, you know, has multiple applications, right? One is, you know, typically break it into three kinds of problems that, you know, are applications for a quantum computer. One is everybody talks about AI. So AI is an area where quantum computers can be applied effectively. The second is in the area of materials and simulations where, you know, you can figure out exactly how various complex molecules interact. And the so what there is you can go and discover new elements that we currently could not model and discover. And and same thing applies to drug discovery as well, uh, where, you, you know, the understanding of the side effects and interactions of the new drug, you know, takes an inordinate amount of time now. And that can be extremely shortened by using quantum computers. So that's an application. And the third is, you know, complex math problems that I just talked about, where the factorization problem of the 637-digit number can be solved by quantum computer. And, and that is actually where the intersection of payments that Marianne talked about and what I earlier called as quantum safe come into picture. The problem of factorizing large numbers is what is predominantly used in cryptography. So the cryptography is what we use when, when you have your bank transaction, when you have your online purchases, when you, when you do anything electronic, any electronic communication, you're doing it with confidence that that communication is end-to-end encrypted. 
In fact, WhatsApp calls out that, hey, our communications are end-to-end encrypted, right? That encryption and similar encryption is based on mathematical problems that cannot be solved today by classical computers, a la this factorization problem. So now when a quantum computer with sufficient scale and maturity in the future comes along and says, I can break such problems, essentially it can break encryption. That is where the problem comes in. So the so what that I I asked you earlier comes down to the so what of factorizing big problems is that that so what exactly challenges the existing mechanisms used in cryptography. Okay. I have a question. Sure. Hope that is clear. It is because I guess I I did a little bit of reading about zero knowledge proofs. Could this be, is this a way to, because as a security measure, would a quantum computer or quantum computing be able to kind of crack that as well? Is that a a danger? Well, zero knowledge proof is, in my view, a a separate topic altogether. You know, zero knowledge proofs and zero trust architecture says that I don't trust anyone, that I got to verify everything, right? That's, That's how you implement security. But the question is, how are you going to verify you are who you are? Right. That is where encryption comes in. And that is what is challenged by, you know, quantum computers. You can apply all this zero trust, zero knowledge proofs and zero trust architecture. But if you are using an encryption mechanism that can be broken by a classical computer, it doesn't really matter. And that's where it goes back to your risk question, Emily. What are the risks? Right. So it's a spaghetti of risks. It's not just my payment didn't go through or there's this web of you know, stuff that happens and that's where the risk comes in. Yeah, and Marianne talked about blockchain, right? Blockchain uses, blockchain is based on distributed ledger, which means if we are all in a blockchain, each of us has a copy of the entire blockchain and it is secure because I can only see what I put in and what I'm allowed to see. But the moment I have the ability to break the encryption, I can masquerade as you. I can masquerade as Marianne. I can see everything that is there in the blockchain. And so things such as blockchain become broken. It's not immutable anymore, right? The the claim to fame 10, 12 years ago was immutable. That is now, you know, at risk and on the table. So are we scaring you? Because that's usually what we do the first 30 minutes is we, we terrify people. <laughs> it seems to me a little bit chicken and egg, right? Because yeah. like the, the issue is the blockchain or the zero knowledge proof or the mm-hmm. cryptography being able to be broken by a quantum computer, not a classical computer. Correct. So the quantum computing kind of causes the problem then? <laughs> and then and it then is kind of provides the solution? Is that like a, a like a feedback loop? Like it's, you know, well, you it, set it, the fire and then you put it out? So it gives me an opportunity to debunk another myth, which is solving the cryptography challenge posed by a quantum computer doesn't require a quantum computer. What do I mean by that? I said, hey, classical computers have these cryptographic algorithms that are similar to this math problem I just talked about that is used pervasively. A quantum computer has the ability to break that encryption. However, when you say, where are the solutions going to come from, right? The solution doesn't require a quantum computer. The solution, actually, if you think about it, has to be implemented on a classical computer. You and I are now conversing using a classical computer and using encryption mechanisms and such. That will never go away. That will continue to exist and grow. So any encryption mechanism that we come up with that is resistant, quantum resistance or quantum safe will have to run on classical computer. 
So to clarify, you don't need a quantum computer to solve a cryptography problem on a classical computer. You, in fact, need algorithms on classical computers that cannot be broken by classical as well as quantum. Have you ever watched the like FBI's, CSI's, SVU's where there's always this one really smart person, you know, Penelope Garcia, or the, they live in the basement and they can break any code anywhere with 75 clicks, <laughs> it's, right? They just click away and they're like, oh, they moved 12 times. The key is it's over here and it's identifying the risk. And then it's handing it back to say, I've given you the opportunity to solve the problem. The problem is here. The bad guys will figure out it. You know, the bad guys are always a step ahead because they don't follow rules and regulations, but it's how to use that computing, bring back the knowledge it just gave you, and then figure out how to use the tools or create the tools to actually solve the problem. So you got to kind of view it as that really smart person that you keep in the basement. <laughs> and then bring, it, bring it back. Sorry, I don't mean to put quantum in the basement. <laughs> you know not putting quantum in the, I'm not putting baby in the corner. No. <laughs> I'm just trying to say that it's a tool to be smart. Yes. It points out the weak points. It points out the failures. Now take your current stuff, your new stuff, your innovation to find a way to one, solve it and two, use new stuff, right? That's where the new stuff comes in. So This is one of the use cases of quantum. The point I made about application in AI, application in material uh, materials area, and, and, and even optimization algorithms for your portfolio analysis, etc. There are other use cases where quantum can be applied. This factorization is one such use case, but it also has an impact on the here and now. I'm going to go back to your original question. It's the revolution of payments and the stuff that's the ecosystem that surrounds it is what everybody should be paying attention to. There's always some new noise or value or activity in, in the payments and banking space. This is, to me, from the banking perspective, one of the hottest, I would say coolest, but hottest and, and a focus that people should be looking at because the risk is real. The opportunity is also real, right? So you can't run away from it because you don't want to hear it. It's embrace it, learn it, and then figure out you know, what you can do with it. The, the question is also then, I keep going back to the so what, right? Okay, fine, we have this algorithm um, that helps us break existing cryptography. And I just said that, oh, cryptography is pervasively used. And so what are the bad things that a bad actor can do with this you know, knowledge, right? So the challenges that, that we need to be aware of, we talked about a couple of them already, but I just want to sort of summarize for the, for the audience is, I touched on the fact that it leads to fraudulent authentication, that we can authenticate as somebody else and by forging their digital signatures. That's where the blockchain breaks. <clears throat> because I can break encryption and cryptography, I can masquerade as Elliot, I can masquerade as somebody else, right? And, and that is a bad thing. That's number one. Second, more important one, that leads to yeah, a problem that we call harvest now and decrypt later which is unique to this challenge that we are facing. Because sometimes people make this comparison to Y2K and call this YQK. This, this is something similar to that. Um, I'm not a big fan of that term, but you know, just to draw a parallel, yes, Y2K had two-year 
digit problem that needed to be converted to Fourier. So here we have existing cryptography that need to be converted to post-quantum cryptography. And it's not as easy as changing a two-digit year to a four-digit year. That's a difference. The other is we knew exactly when Y2K was going to happen. Whereas here, we don't have an exact timeline. We only have a range of time frame, early 2030s, right? Several pundits and studies are pointing to that time frame. The third most important one is that this hard notion of harvest now and decrypt later, which is, which didn't exist in the Y2K phenomenon. And this phenomenon is that anyone, a bad actor, a motivated bad actor can exfiltrate data today. Right, no means of decrypting it. And they don't particularly care what information they're exfiltrating because they may not even know what they're exfiltrating because it is encrypted. But they can exfiltrate that and sit on it for years. And then when a quantum computer capable of decrypting cryptography comes up, they can see how they can monetize it, how they can you know, cause harm by decrypting the data that they have and, and do other damages, right? That is the fear that is there with this harvest now when decrypted. And then I'm not disagreeing. I love the term because people can relate to whenever I talk about this, Y2K was a definitive date, midnight. Midnight, it was happening, right? And to raise point, two freaking digits completely paralyzed the world for years. There was task forces around it, right? But it was a known date that nothing happened. Literally nothing happened. The thing with the message, the education, the advocacy that we're trying to promote is this will happen. We don't know the date. And so the reason that that term for me is relevant to the banking world, because we love acronyms. We love acronyms. <laughs> but, you know, we love them, especially three. But to I hate the word scare, but impact them, get their attention, snap out of it. Like it's coming and I can't tell you the date. So you still need the task force. You still need the group. You still need the focus. I just can't tell you when in the next three, five, or seven years it will actually hit, right? So to me, that's a very important term because it's digestible to lay people. And we're not here to predict for you. We can't predict, but we're here to tell you it's coming for sure. So I love the term simply because people understand it. They can do the analogy and that it's not as black and white. Therefore, I don't have a black and white solution for you. I have recommendations on one on the things that you should do. Yeah. And what are yeah. some of those recommendations? If you could share some yeah. of those, if you'd be willing, because I know you talk about this a lot, both of you. <laughs> so maybe I'll pose the solution that exists from the technology side, and then Marianne can apply that or take it on, on the payment side, right? So the fundamental question then comes, hey, if the current classical algorithms are going to be compromised when a quantum computer with sufficient scale and capacity becomes available, then shouldn't we find algorithms that cannot be broken by classical as well as quantum? That's the natural question. And so NIST, the standards organization here in the U.S., conducted a competition beginning 2016 to address precisely that. They asked for submission of algorithms that cannot be broken by classical as well as quantum computers. And to fast forward, after seven years and scrutinizing 80 plus algorithms, they settled on four algorithms that passed their scrutiny and test from the community that they're going to build standards around, right? Uh, three of the four algorithms came from IBM. So that's something that that we are absolutely proud of. Okay. And, 
Yeah, that, that certainly demonstrates not just our, our expertise in that space, but depth of knowledge and experience in, in building these algorithms as well. Now, the standards are going to be published sometime early 2024. Middle of 2024, they'll be out there. Some of them are already out for circulation within the community. So those algorithms exist. And we have started to test them and apply them at clients to see, you know, their comparative performance with with current algorithms and their applicability in different scenarios and all that. So many folks have started to do that work. We are now applying it at a number of clients so that they're being hardened, if you will. And we are learning a lot from that and figuring out application scenario and all that. So from a solution standpoint to your to the question you posed, we do have the algorithms. And we know how to apply them. Standards are being built by NIST and will be announced next year. And we expect that to really accelerate the need for our adoption of clients picking up the algorithms they need to, to apply that across their enterprises. And in parallel, they're also looking, NIST is also looking for newer algorithms for targeted areas that we could support. So net-net, Elliot, to your question, the current classical algorithms have been there for years, whether it is RSA, AES, you know, whatever the mechanisms are, they've been there for years and people have improved upon it, applied it, used it, learned from it, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the newer algorithms have just come out of the lab, so to speak, right? And so they need to go through the field testing, hardening. And a lot of that was done through the six years or seven years that NIST evaluated it. But now we are beginning to apply them in client scenarios and then go from there. The last point I'll make is, again, the the so what of this is, as clients begin to convert their existing algorithms, existing classical algorithms to be quantum safe algorithms, we also highly recommend that they adopt what we call crypto agility. This goes into how solutions need to be built. And crypto agility says that I'm going to build these in such a way that I'm increasing my agility to support changes in the future. What it means is if newer algorithms do come up, whether it is because the current algorithms are broken or whether the performance of the newer algorithms are better for the scenarios I'm interested in, I need to have the ability to switch out the old and switch in the new relatively easily. I shouldn't go through the same set of old classical to post-quantum, you know, took, takes a lot of time for me to convert. I got to go through another big conversion. That would not be ideal. So making these modifications with crypto agility in mind is a key recommendation that I would strongly advocate for as people build solutions in any industry, including payments. So my add-on to that is, you know, the key point that Ray said was, You've you've got to start up front. So, and there's two parts to me in the solution space. In my opinion, you know, Rayside is much more technical security, you know, kind of the IT people, the, the security people need to be involved, right? We say this all the time. Those guys are responsible for that stuff. They should be working on it. They should be proactively working on it. Figure out a use case or two. You know, we we believe that we have formed, between Ray and I, we have formed two different industry groups, one in the US and one in Australia, to get the right people in the room across the lines. So it's the CSO, the CPO, chief security officer, chief product officer, chief CIO. And then you need to bring in the line of business. And that's the other half of the opportunity and solutions, right? So I'm the line of business person. 
I met with my IT people and said, you're doing this, right? You're getting the security in place. You're looking at this. You're testing this. You're looking at our level of cryptography. Do I need AES or not? Go back years to all the other tech terms. So that side of the house needs to be proactively looking at what's coming and testing. And, you know, we are hoping out of this come some use cases that can be tested. You know, these working groups, we hope, are relatively small, four, eight, 10, not 40 people. And then move to the line of business side, which is where the other solution and opportunity is. How can I use this technology to help my financial institution? How can I take this technology to not only help me as an FI, but help my customer? And most in my world, the customer is the commercial customer, right? So I repeat this all the time. A year ago, there was a study by a research institute to 6,000 CEOs. What are your top priorities for the next three years for your business? Number one, bar chart. Number one, this far out, cybersecurity, security, risk management in this very fragile world. Number four, cash management, treasury management. You know why? Because that's money movement. And in a real-time world where we are now increasing the pace and location of real-time payments, U.S. has Fed now. Anybody read the headlines on TCH lately? The TCH has been down for two days. That's horrific. But you have PICs and you have faster payments and you have G3 and you have, right? In a real-time world, the money's moving immediately and irrevocably in most cases. So when you combine my need as a CEO to manage the risk and my my need to manage the money movement, both as a bank and my corporate customers, use this technology, this equipment, this to create solutions that help me manage my liquidity, manage my money movement in a secure manner, right? Because there's two things nobody wants to do, lose money and be on the front page. Being on the front page is one of the worst things that could possibly happen right? You know, these top five or six banks haven't been able to deposit money to their customers. That's the last thing a bank CEO wants is to be on the front page because they can't deposit to their customers' accounts. Or worse yet, the deposits have been stolen. So the combination is where both sides of the business, the line of business, you know, chief product officer, chief treasury, you know, and the CIO, CTO organization in which usually the chief security officer sits, they need to be partners. And, you know, one's a little bit more of a how and the other's a little bit more of a what and a why. I want to go to my corporate and say, I'm secure. I can give you quantum safe. You don't need to worry. By the way, using it, I can give you tools to manage your liquidity better, right? I can use the algorithms to recalibrate transactions. I can give you analytics. I can give you diagnostics. So you'll see that a hospital here, a government there is starting to adopt this not just as a technology underpinning security and faster computing or unique computing, but as a way to solve customer problems and improve the payment system. So it really is a both sides thing. People are, again, we terrify people usually the first 30 or 35 minutes, but yeah. And, and, and they should be in the sense of don't let the train leave the station. Catching up is hard. Catching up is really hard. I imagine so, with the story you, you've just shown, you, yeah. don't, you don't want to be late to the party no, on this. No, definitely. You don't want to be late to the party. No, and a couple more data points that we have seen here that underscore you know, the very points we were just discussing is we have seen that it takes about six to eight years on average for any enterprise to transform their cryptography. That's based on history, right? What they had to do to go change from SHA-1 to SHA-2 as, as, an, as a matter of example. So this is not easy. They don't know 
where all cryptography exists. So making a comprehensive change is difficult. Plus, it is not just them. Even if an enterprise is ready with all the changes they need to make, they interact with a number of ecosystem partners and providers and, and tool manufacturers, software vendors, et cetera, et cetera. There's this whole supply chain of software that they need to make sure is also quantum proof or quantum safe. That takes time. This is a large transformation that, that we need to be aware of. And that is why, to tie it back to the point Marianne was talking about the consortiums and work groups, we need to work not just as individual technology providers and clients, we need to work as a consortium or work as an industry group that is able to move the entire industry. So from IBM, we have got a couple that are in flight right now. One is the GSMA, Vodafone, IBM, post-quantum telco network task force that is a year old that has been working in the telco space because everybody who uses internet has to use telco in one way, shape, or form. So making sure that they have an industry-wide standard and approach and best, best practices, and now they're into defining use cases and examples, that is important. The next thing we've turned our attention to is payments because everybody uses payments as well. So we have that PQTN in the telco space. We have a PQC coalition with MITRE organization that was launched about a month ago and it's progressing well. And we are looking to do two more in the payment space, one in North America and one in Australia. And I just want to point out something that Ray said a couple of comments ago. NIST has been working on this for six years. It's not new. So everybody always thinks, like when I would talk about blockchain back in, you know, 10 years ago, mainly because of Bitcoin, blockchain's been around since the 80s. Nobody knew that. It wasn't until, you know, Bitcoin arrived with cryptography attached. The sole purpose of Bitcoin was peer-to-peer real-time. That was its sole purpose. And whenever I would go to thousands of things. I say blockchain's been around for 20 years. They'd go, you're crazy because they never heard of it until Bitcoin and crypto and the cryptography came attached to it. So what I'm trying to say is people have been working on quantum from an innovation, looking at it preparedness perspective for a long time. It's now reaching the crescendo of you better step up, start to get involved, start to learn and prepare your organization because it's not easy. It's complicated. It's an investment of time and resources that not a lot of people fully understand and appreciate. So at the end of the day, our collective message is it's real. It's coming. We are here to help guide and evangelize and educate. And you do need, if you're an FI, if you're a corporate, I'd, I'd still have a task force, but I'd ask your bank, what, what you doing? And if I was a bank, if I was a bank, I'd be prepared to answer that question. But it's been in the healthcare and the telco and these other spaces, you know, really for quite a while. It was just in the last, you know, year, 15, 18 months that the payments and banking space has really started to pay attention. Well, dragging, kicking and screaming into the conversation. So, yeah, yeah. I know I know we're going a bit long. That's but okay. like, why, why do you think like that it. is that like the FS people, financial services people were kind of like the last or not the last, but sort of slow to the party. First of all, it's a very at the end of the day, it's an enormously regulated industry. enormously regular and they're not the you know there's what i would call slow followers you know somebody else has to be the bleeding heart right somebody else has to put something out there so they're kind of a watcher and a follower people like me i'm like oh this is cool let's let's go talk about it 
And they're like, whoa, whoa, I'm too busy. I got other stuff. I don't have a budget. I don't understand it. That's the challenge that I think financial institutions, large corporate, you know, bureaucratic enterprises just have in totality. That's not unusual. It really isn't unusual. But the key is how do we light a fire that makes them want to do it a little bit differently? And and honestly, Ray and I did a session, well, earlier this year, and, you know, the room was gobsmacked of yeah. questions, everything from the, you know, the electric grid to the power grid to the, their minds just were racing. And, you know, we sort of adopted this tagline that we terrify people and then we, we try to bring them back to, if you do these things, you, you'll be in a better spot. And number two, there's opportunity. It's not just scare and panic and technology. Use this technology to bring solutions to yourself and to your customers. So, you know, it's not, these things aren't easy. The payment space isn't easy. The technology, it's not easy. And some of it's just not enough time, not enough people. And I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to my old adage. I tried to explain the internet to a CEO back the corner office in 1995. Yikes. We're never going to move money on that thing. Looky at us now. And then you moved to 2010, 11, 12 on with the blockchain and crypto. People were just bedazzled. They didn't understand it. They were panicked. I have to do it. They didn't know why. It, yeah. It's just the kind of industry, especially throw in regulations and regulators and, and then throw in the rails. Are you really moving money and how are you doing it? And I just can't express how what a complex space it is. You know, I'm not denying any other industry or space isn't complicated, but payments is up there because, yeah. you know, it's not just about moving the money. It's about the data the security, the analytics, the reporting, the cash positioning, the cash flow, the workflow. It's downstream and upstream. It's not a simple transaction. It's really multifaceted. So it, it's a complex space to work. At, at the end of the day, though, I don't want the audience to sort of be left wondering, you know, so what do I do, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So creating that FUD factor is the initial stage. We don't want to end there. We do have, you know, approaches capabilities, tools, and techniques that exist that says, look, here is how any client, for that matter, not just in payments, but any client, for that matter, can begin to take on this journey of making themselves quantum safe, right? Go through a stage of discovery where you discover what exists, then go through a stage of observation and prioritization where you look at everything that happens within your dynamic state and then prioritize based on the risk that is specific for you because you can't transform everything at the same time. So understanding the risk, not only to transform, but also to say, what do I need to prioritize first to prevent the harvest now down decrypt later from impacting me? Because that means data that has a time value over the next seven, 10 years is what I want to prioritize first and protect that. So risk analysis prioritization leads to what transformation steps do I take in order to begin my journey and protect my you know, crown jewels as I may see it. So discover, observe and prioritize, transform are the three stages that we take clients through. And then we obviously have technologies and tools that will help us and help them in going through that process. And, and, you know, get yourself a seat at the table. I mean, at the end of the day, are you the follower or are you somebody that wants to sit at the table, one, learn, and two, influence, right? So the key is accept that this is real, identify it as a priority to some degree, and then lend your people to the future. It's really lending your people and your institution to be prepared for the future. 
I think it's always good to end with something concrete, especially with a topic like this that many are scared with, uh, yeah. I guess, even fewer understand. Obviously not you two. Uh, so it's nice to give some something concrete that, yeah. hey, don't panic. We can take you through all the steps. You'll be okay, but you kind of got to start now. Exactly. <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's the... Well said. Don't, well don't said. panic, but begin planning. <laughs> Maybe with a small P. Like, just don't get caught behind. Like, don't, you know, don't get caught behind because catching up is really hard. Yeah, but that okay. must be kind of difficult with these conversations where you kind of like scare the shit out of people. And yeah. then they're like, oh my God, oh my, like, that's to ruin our whole business. We're going to have like zero money at the end of the day. And you're like, just chill out. Just yeah. chill out. I've been there. I was the one that had to go to the board of directors and ask for money. They want a concrete return on their money. So if I go upstairs and say, hey, I want to start a group and and why? And you know, if I give you X many dollars, Marianne, what are you going to bring back? So there's the invest in ROI of you give me a million, I'll give you two. That's black and white. This is, I'm investing in us. It's not an expense. It's an investment to prepare you for the future. So it's kind of a rolling investment, right? Give me $25 to go do this. I'll bring you the reason I need 75. Give me 75 and I'll bring you the reason to bring me 100, right? I call it a rolling investment. So don't go up and ask for a million dollars in 20 people. Mm-hmm. say, this is how I want to do it. Give me an incremental amount of money and then go back and say, I learned this. I got this out of this. If you just give me a hundred dollars more, now I can do a POC. I've got banks on board. I've got a FinTech on board, right? So it's incrementally selling the guys upstairs. Cause if you just go upstairs with a terrifying subject that they don't understand and ask for a million dollars, you're going to fail. So they need to understand that investing and preparing is really important. And that can be done in a rolling incremental manner that we can help define. It's really important that they don't just say, I need to have a quantum task force tomorrow because they're not going to give you the money. They have other priorities to raise point. What's your priority? Rolling investment, rolling payback, rolling ROI. It works. I seriously can tell you it works no matter what the size of the institution. I do have one final question to ask just just because just a final question it's a fun one because you guys have been traveling around obviously speaking about this quite a bit that was the way we met you the last time was that you were at money 2020 back in june so i don't know if you have like a fun little anecdote or something light or a good experience that you had when explaining this to somebody (laughs) when you were on those trips that you can uh kind of share with with our audience maybe Honestly, I I would have to say, and I won't name the group, Mm -hmm. it is an association Mm -hmm. of payments professionals that Ray and I made a presentation at in Washington, D.C. And I go back to the, I cannot express the sheer whiteness of their faces, (laughs) all the color grained as they understood all the terms that we view, the harvest and the equivalency to blockchain. Somebody asked Ray point blank. Are you saying this can break the blockchain? And Ray went like this. Yes. <laughs> it was sort of priceless in the sense of it's that once people listen and digest, we walked out of the room with 700 follow-ups and calls and I just never knew. And we've done this several times since and we've had some very interesting, very interesting conversations. But the sheer response, the sheer look on their faces, the emotional response to it. Um, for me, was something that really told me we're we're on to something here. Mm-hmm. We are on to something, and, and we've proven it, you know, twenty times since. But that was just a meeting where it was like, we, you know, we're on to something. The banking world and the financial world—they really want to hear this. And everybody in the room was payments. Everybody. So we didn't have 
it, it wasn't a disparate audience. That strikes me. Money 2020 was pretty cool too, but um, that was the most evocative. Yeah, Money 2020 was pretty cool because we got to throw things at people. <laughs> we got well, to we, throw this cube. Like, we physically? This oh, the cube. Uh, the talking oh, yeah. cube. Uh, the yeah, talking the cubes. Cube. Yeah, the talking cube. And it was funny because somebody asked a question and I couldn't see and Ray got to throw it. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was that was a fun part for me. Yeah, I got, to, I got to throw things at people when they ask some questions, but... My experience is that, you know, if I reflect back and look at things, you know, a year and a half ago and, and now, because that's how long I've been evangelizing this and passing the message along. Elliot, you started the discussion by saying that when you ask people about payments and quantum, people kind of give you a blank stare. Yeah. That's what it was a year ago. Whereas now there is still a little bit of the stare, but it is a not a stare of, I have no clue what you're talking about, but this is more, man, I do understand what you're talking about and I'm concerned about it or scared about it. So it's a different kind of a stare, but they, they now have a recognition of the challenge posed uh, by this whole topic of, of cryptography and the need to change it and then are looking at how can I really make, make some changes here. The enormity of the change is sinking in and folks are beginning to say, man, I got to do something here. How do I do it? My only caveat on that is who are you talking to? Yeah. So Ray is 100% right. If you're talking to the IT security, they are absolutely much more responsive in that manner and ask really good questions. I'm after the line of yeah. business who are not understanding the tech and the opportunity that they have. That's that's the only difference I would point out. True. Yeah, my closing comment around that was going to be, while whatever I say is true for the CISOs and CIOs uh, of many enterprises, there is still a lot more who are still, you know, not where they need to be, right? So there is progress in the right direction, and I'm sure it will pick up speed in the coming year, but there's not much runway left for people if they still don't get on board. Okay. Okay. Maybe since this, this space moves so quickly, maybe we should have you on like every year or every six I months know. to get like an update, <laughs> We're to, see, need an update. to see like adoption update, and we can do like 15 minutes and just like... What's okay. going on? Like, yeah, I think you'll see significant progress in six months in the space. And so we, you should at least catch up and see where things are. And then you can be the judge of whether you want to do one more of this at that time or six months later. Yeah, but like I said in the beginning, the, the evolution of the story, even since we met with you in June and all the presentations Ray and I have made, that's also evolved and changed. So it's, it's a good thing. Um, it's all a good thing. So it's evolved just in the short time Ray and I have been working and talking about it. Yep. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing, yeah. Thanks for telling everyone about quantum computing and also just banking and financial services and payments. It was a great combination of subjects there. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, guys. Uh, really great to catch up with you again. Of course. Absolutely. It's been a great conversation all the way around. So yeah, uh, thank you guys so much for coming yeah. on. All right. Take care, guys. Have a nice oh, day. I.O. <laughs> <laughs> Ciao. You've just been listening to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. Paytech Talk is brought to you by Cognito Amsterdam. Thanks for listening.